0: Hello and welcome to Pelvic Floor at Its Core, the only podcast out there that is brought to you by a women's health technology company, Flight Therapy. I'm your host, Shravya Kavella, Pelvic Health Physical Therapist and Business Development Manager at Flight Therapy. Find us at www.flighttherapy.com for educational articles, videos, and our free Ask a PT program. You can learn more about how flight can improve pelvic floor muscle tone, strength, and stress urinary incontinence when used for five minutes per day for an average of six weeks, if dealing with pelvic floor weakness. We have a unique approach at Flight. We believe our product Flight can provide life-changing outcomes, but we also know that no single treatment is right for everyone. We are therefore working hard to increase the collective knowledge out there about the importance of the pelvic floor, Because the more we work together, the more we can work towards increasing access to pelvic health care, so all women can truly live their best lives. On this podcast, I bring on pelvic health experts to talk about a variety of topics that any and every woman and clinician can relate to and learn from. It's always informative, always interesting, and we always have fun. So let's get into it. Welcome back and hello. We have some exciting news. We have a totally, totally new look. It is a brand refresh. It's just in time for fall and it looks so good, in my biased opinion. We want our brand to represent what we feel that we represent, which is being welcoming, rocking new services, resources, and technology for women empowering others, and just being warm and inviting. And I feel like we did just that. So check us out on our website, www.flightflytetherapy.com, and let us know what you think. Okay, on to our amazing and our, onto the episode and our amazing guests. These are two ladies who I was seriously so thrilled to be talking to. They are creating a new norm for pregnant and postpartum people everywhere. Catherine Sylvester and Jessica Thompson are two pelvic floor physical therapists and the founders of Operation MIST, M-I-S-T, a 24-7 remote monitoring service to help moms survive delivery and thrive throughout motherhood. Basically, a MIST mom receives a watch, and through that watch, Catherine or Jessica will help track their baseline data and catch any changes in their data that may indicate something more sinister. They will then help guide that mom or mom-to-be through the next steps, whether it's going to urgent care, advocating for themselves at a doctor's appointment, or even just making lifestyle changes at home. Their passion for this work comes from the maternal health crisis. And here's a crazy stat for you. According to the CDC, 60% of the 700 deaths and 50,000 severe complications that take place annually in the United States could be avoided if early warning signs were caught and treated in a timely manner. And furthermore, the fatality rate in people of color is significantly higher, which we do speak about in our interview. And I just honestly love this whole conversation because I felt so inspired by what Catherine and Jessica are doing. There's two stories at the end of the episode that they share about two of their missed moms is just incredible. And this is what really needs to be the norm in maternal healthcare. So take a listen, be sure to support Operation Mist, and let us know what you think via social media or leaving us a review or subscribing to the podcast. All right, enjoy.
1: Hello, ladies. How are you?
2: Doing great. (laughs) This is Catherine.
1: Fantastic. This is Jessica. Amazing.
0: I'm so thrilled to have both of you on our podcast. It's just so exciting to have you guys and talk about maternal health and what you both have come up with, Operation Mist, which is amazing. I think everyone should go out and do this, so I can't wait for us to talk more about it. I'm going to jump right in, and I'm going to ask you both just what has been your journey to becoming a pelvic floor physical therapist, as well as coming to CARE. About maternal health?
2: So I got into physical therapy initially and was a neuro PT in a hospital. And after having my first child, I realized the gap that exists in the maternal health care system. So I wanted to create something for women so they could have support all along their journey from puberty all the way through the end of life. So the program I started is Rediscover Your Music. It's an acronym for muscle flexibility, urinary continence, sexual fulfillment, internal confidence and core stability. And so I started looking at moms through the lens of their diet, exercise the way they handle stress, their social interactions and their sleep patterns. And so that kind of let me get an understanding of what all the things were that, that moms needed support with. The focus got narrowed after having my second child, when I had postpartum preeclampsia. So I had some complications toward the end of my pregnancy, and I realized at that point that more could be done to prevent things like preeclampsia from ever occurring in the first place. So that's what landed me here.
0: Wow! So you've definitely had some personal experience that brought you here, and I love how you said puberty to end of life because the number of times I've heard from women like. No one told me about X, Y, or Z is crazy. And Jessica, how about you?
1: Yeah, so I'm a little bit different than Catherine. I'm not a mom yet. I was introduced to pelvic health in my gap year between undergrad and PT school. I was a PT tech or an aide at like a 100% pelvic floor um, outpatient clinic. And so I just got to see it every day for a year, and I saw how so many women were just benefited and impacted by pelvic floor PT. But also while I was there, I just saw common barriers of people having to drive, I mean, over 60 miles sometimes to see this PT, just because there were not enough pelvic PTs in the area. And just me having to call and schedule patients, having to kind of convince them to prioritize their health because they felt guilty especially moms they felt guilty about you know putting things aside and not prioritizing their kids for a moment just to go into pt for an hour to get the help that they needed so i recently started my own practice it's generational health pt and wellness and my goal is just to eliminate those barriers so i am a mobile practice so i go to mom's homes and treat them there So that they don't have to worry about getting childcare and balancing work and going to PT and being a mom and being a wife and all of those things.
0: I love that. I love how both of you are so focused on yes, PT, but PT is so much more than the physical aspect and looking at that whole holistic realm of What are the barriers for moms to get the care that they need? And that just takes me directly to kind of the meat of what we're talking about today, which is maternal health. So that we're all on the same page, will you just define exactly what maternal health means and what it encompasses?
2: So for us, it really is figuring out the things that can impact the motherhood journey and then providing education the proper team, so collaboration, and advocacy. And that way a mom can get exactly what she needs in terms of support before she gets pregnant, during the pregnancy, during the delivery, immediately postpartum, and then for life. So whatever that need is, the healthcare system or the community should be able to fill that need. That's what we think of when we think about maternal health care.
0: So I'm hearing you say it's encompassing emotional health, physical health, that mental health, and that as a healthcare community, we should be addressing all of those things.
2: Yes, ma'am, and and everyone, you know, there are a lot of healthcare providers who can do that. So we do think about physical therapists, but also cardiologists if a mm-hmm. woman is coming to the table with heart issues, um, making sure that she's supported between pregnancies. So we think about maternal healthcare sometimes as the pregnancy episode, but what happens between pregnancy number one and pregnancy number two? That matters because you have statistics that say mothers who have preeclampsia, their first pregnancy, seven times more likely to have it their second. Well, that's because nothing's changed between pregnancy number one and pregnancy number two. So Mm -hmm. if we could get some kidney doctors on board, lactation consultants, postpartum doulas, labor doulas, just all the different people who have been trained, if they could just be reached out to. I think it would make a huge difference. And then teaching the family how they can support during this time as well. And, you know, you think about work and how society places work on a a very high priority list. But the problem is that sometimes during pregnancy, working is not the best thing for a mom. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. most of the time, six weeks is not enough time for a mom to recover. Her C-section isn't even, the incision associated with it is only 50% healed at six weeks. So for those moms who are going back to lifting and being out of the house all day and, and doing all of these things, they're not given the time they need to heal. So When you look at other countries and they give moms a year or mother-in-laws come in or moms and they support for an entire year, some people look at it as overkill. We look at it as the bare minimum standard and respect that a woman should get to respect the birthing process.
0: Wow. So I have to tell you, thinking about what other countries are doing, I recently saw online a a friend from a previous time in my life who gave birth in south korea and spent two weeks in a postnatal luxury spa where they get food massages they get all of that (laughs) and it's all included and i thought it was a joke when I first read that. I mean, truthfully, I was like, oh, a postnatal spa.
1: haha!" Ha. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. It's so amazing. And I think the birthing experience is one that's going to be around forever as long as we are here. And we just haven't made much change to how it's done and how the mom and the dad experience that in, in ways to make it a more positive experience
0: i think you both make such a great point too about needing consistent and additional care between pregnancies as well and Mm -hmm. you know looking past those practitioners who specifically are focusing on pelvic health or the the maternal aspects you know looking at cardiologists kidney docs like how can we increase access to these visits and normalize that is really interesting because I I think we all know the statistics of the number of people who are even getting any postpartum care mm. is really poor.
1: Yeah. And to your point, I was seeing a patient earlier this week. Um, I also do orthopedics as well. And She was literally 70 years old and she was coming to see me for back pain. And I always check vitals for my patients before I see them. And her blood pressure was extremely high. And I go to ask her, is your blood pressure always this high? She says, yes, it's been this way since I had my last baby (gasps) in 1970. And I'm like... Okay. And she's taking blood pressure medication. She takes it as prescribed, but her blood pressure is still this high. Her mom passed away from stroke. Her dad, her brother. Oh my God. Nobody is intervening and trying to change this. Right. And it's for her, it started after she had her baby postpartum and she like, to Catherine's point, she probably never saw a cardiologist, probably never saw a nephrologist or any specialist to see what's going on with her blood pressure. And she even told me when I talked to her about it, she says that, oh, I do remember after I had my baby, I had to be taken away because of my blood pressure. You know, so she probably had postpartum preeclampsia and just didn't know the name of it, right? And wow. so that's why that interceptive care, that care between pregnancies or just postpartum care in general is so important because it matters. like every body system for women when they're pregnant, it changes. And it doesn't just go back to normal six weeks postpartum. It doesn't. But if you're a mom and you have to work and you have to care for your children, it's so easy to just keep going. And not investigate things. And then you end up being 70 years old still with hypertension.
2: Yeah. And Jessica, that's if you make it to 70, right? We have these moms who their kidneys are failing 10 years post preeclampsia because they never knew that your kidneys are typically affected with preeclampsia. So having the right things emphasized in the healthcare system is important. So why is it so bad to have high blood pressure? People need to know this at the, on the other side of high blood pressure is kidney failure. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of stuff that happens in between, but on the other side of it is typically something breaking down. And so if we can attack it early, then we can prevent some of those complications that come later. And even when Jessica was talking about the person, she was aware that her her blood pressure was high and nothing's been done. And then we have to think about the people though, who are not aware of things. So some labs that that they should have done, you know, you look and there are certain things that they draw for every year. Why are they not doing hormone panels? Why are they not doing, you know, people not being educated about their hemoglobin A1c and what that could mean for gestational diabetes in pregnancy or how thyroid issues can affect your pregnancy journey. These moms may have those numbers, but they don't realize the implications. And then on the other side of that, sometimes people don't have those numbers. So if they Mm. don't know that their progesterone levels are low, then they, they can't understand why they continue to have miscarriages. So mm-hmm. it's just, there's some, such a lack of education in the system and then solutions being provided when the issues arise.
0: I think to add to that point, you know, the hormone panel, for example, a lot of times it's not covered. Oh, insurance. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so even being proactive and wanting to, get more information about your health is really hard in our healthcare system. It's expensive, it's time consuming. And we're just such a for-profit system.
2: You know, one thing that we've realized is that if we partner with other organizations, then a lot of those costs can be covered. And moms don't know that. So if, you know, imagine if you went to your OBGYN and they knew exactly what you needed, and then they also connected you with a community health partner who could provide that need. Amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing? It would be so amazing. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So
0: I'm really interested to hear about what you all find from your monitoring of moms. But before we get to that, I want to pull out this CDC statistic that you have on your website because it's crazy and shocking. And that is that black and native American women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related causes compared to white women. And that is wild. Mm -hmm. When and how did you first become aware of this crisis?
2: So for me, it was post baby number two. And I feel so bad saying that I was really just in the dark about it until then. I had both of my children at home and I honestly did not realize that 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 statistic existed, nor did I realize why until I went to my provider. So (laughs) I had a midwife and the Mm -hmm. midwife noticed that my blood pressure was about was 127 over 80, let's say. So almost 130 over 80. But my normal blood pressure is 100 over 60. So she immediately said, okay, I need to check your urine, see if you have any protein in it. How has your swelling been? We need to, you need to come in and, and we need to talk. And so I thought, well, what's the big deal? It's 130 over 80, you know, being a healthcare yeah. provider even. I noticed that that was a deviation from my baseline, but I didn't realize the implications of it. Well, because of her, The preeclampsia was caught early, and I was still able to birth my second baby at home, which is different than what normally happens. Normally, if you are diagnosed with preeclampsia, you are going to the hospital, you're going to be put on a magnesium drip, you're going to, you know, it a lot of the time ends up in a C section situation. But she saw me and she knew my baseline. So she respected it, and we had a successful delivery. Then, after that, though, what happens with a midwife OB relationship is that if something goes wrong, then the midwife passes the care over to an OBGYN. The OBGYN who saw me did not know anything of me. My midwife knew me for five years because she delivered my first child. So she knew me. She knew the way I ate. She knew that I exercised, my medical background, all of that. My new provider, he looked at me and said, you probably had high blood pressure before you even got pregnant and you just didn't know it. So now you're here and you expect me to fix your problem. And he told me that I would be on high blood pressure medication for the rest of my life. He told me my kidneys would never heal. Um, he, just, he treated me as if he already knew what the end was gonna be. And that's the problem, right? Because if I had him as my provider, then he would have looked at that 128 over 78 and said, oh, she's fine. He would never have looked into it and said that it was preeclampsia. Because what society tells you or what the healthcare standards are is that, you know if it gets to 140 over 90, it's a problem. Well, if she had waited for mine to get to 140 over 90, I could have been dead. And so that's what we're finding is that Black women, it's not taking us to 140 over 90. For the women that we've caught preeclampsia in early, it's been with their blood pressure about what mine was or less. So we're sitting here looking at these standards and doctors are sitting here waiting to intervene for this random number. And the number is different for everybody, but you have to have a healthcare provider who believes that. Because if you don't, a lot of things can be missed. A lot of complications can occur. You know, we've even seen where doctors say or a doctor told one of our moms, you know, we wait until 160 over 110. Once that happens, then we admit you and then you're likely going to have a C-section. Well, why wait that long? You put us on blood pressure medication. A regular everyday person would have been on blood blood pressure medication way before that. So why would you wait until a mom gets to 160 over 110? And I'm hoping that that's not common practice, but we're seeing that that they're at least waiting to 140 over 90 and they're missing the boat a lot of the time.
0: Well, first of all, for those who are listening and are not fully sure what preeclampsia means and why it should be addressed early on, do you mind just defining that for us?
2: So preeclampsia is a complication of pregnancy um, that's typically linked to high blood pressure. So if you're trying to detect it at home, you would see a sudden increase in swelling, swelling. That's not just in your legs, so sometimes it can be in your hands and in your face, and an increase in frequency of urinate of peeing or, or urinating, and typically or sometimes that urine is foamy. And so that is an indicator that something is going on with your kidneys. So preeclampsia is that complication of high blood pressure that can result in something like kidney issues um, and then on the very extreme end of that, something called help syndrome, where moms can end up having a stroke and and having other complications post delivery.
0: Yeah, so a really big deal. Yes, ma'am. First of all, I'm so glad that it was caught early for you and that you had you know your midwife who knows you. But like you said, a lot of people don't have that luxury.
2: I've even seen and and you know just because you raised the statistic and, and we're talking about it. Yeah. So let's say we have 20 women because we've had this happen. 10 women, and they're white women, they have high blood pressure during pregnancy. They're given blood pressure medication and told to just you know, wait it out as long as they can.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Out of another 10 women, these are black women, seven out of 10 of those are told, let's just go ahead and take the baby out. And then that has a C-section. So then let's think about the death rates, right? So with C-sections, you bleed double the amount that you bleed during a vaginal delivery. So if you're doing all of that bleeding, then the number and the number one cause of us dying is bleeding to death then just by virtue of saying yes to a c-section you're putting yourself at a higher risk and then on top of that black women are being put on blood thinners that is the recommendation that's given by acog right now for preventing preeclampsia so i'll just leave that statement there however if we have someone who then delivers at 26 weeks, so she's still on the blood thinner, it's not taken mm. not taken off the blood thinner at that point, and it's an emergency situation, then the likelihood of her bleeding even more is so much higher. And so we have our moms make sure that they ask, okay, you want me to take this medication, when are you planning to take me off of it? That way it's on everybody's radar that I'm not trying to go into an emergency situation and bleed to death, you right. know? So I feel, and then the other thing that we discovered is that, you know, when moms go home and they have these infections, the infections go undetected. So if you are home and you don't have anybody in the home with you and your next follow-up visit is at six weeks, do you know how much damage can be done over the course of six weeks off of an <laughs> infection that goes undetected? That's the third highest cause of us dying. And so, so we have, the, or one of the top three. So we have infections, we have heart problems, and then we have bleeding to death, all of which can be fixed with more surveillance, more education, and just mom's being checked on more often.
0: And it's so hard to get an appointment sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. we tell our moms to show up, don't we, Jessica? Go ahead. Were you going <laughs> to We just told mom. Yes, not
1: are not just to away a
2: pregnant woman? Go ahead,
1: and Jessica. That's why, that's why we love what we do, because a lot of times it is simple. You know, it's things that they may be freaking out about, but things that are common or just can be fixed with like little home remedies or just lifestyle changes. And so um, we definitely understand that that's a barrier. You know that physicians are overworked. You know right now in healthcare, and there's not enough for them to go around for as many moms as there are out there. And um, we just had a mom recently who was had having some bleeding, and of course we advocated for her to go in. And you know she couldn't go to her physician office for a while, you know, we tell them to go to urgent care or to just go anyway, right? Or to just call the nurse's line and to see what the next steps should be. But sometimes um, they kind of need us as a liaison of how to maneuver because sometimes they don't even think, oh, I can't call them after hours and somebody's there on call to tell me what to do. So that's why it's just so important for women to have a a birthing team and, you know, people who are there to advocate for them? Well,
0: I think what I really want to highlight about what you all do is, yes, you monitor. Yes, you provide those home remedies, lifestyle changes, you help guide, but you're providing support, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's scary to be pregnant and your Mm -hmm. body is changing. And I think, Catherine, you're such a good example. You know, you're a healthcare provider, you work in this space and you were like, what's the big deal? My blood pressure is not that high. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, to not have that knowledge and be experiencing something new and being told, oh, you're fine, you're going to believe it. And so having that support is huge. And I think that even without all the other things that you all are doing, like that
2: itself is huge. Well, I love what you said, because I felt great. And that's how I always feel during pregnancy. Mm. I had no clue anything was going on. So even if someone had told me, I mean, because I trusted my midwife, obviously, and I did notice the increase. I just thought I'm at 40 weeks. The baby will probably be here soon, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what we do as women. We try to rationalize away the things we don't want to go wrong. So if there is some objective data that can help us make better decisions, then that helps. And that's what we're finding with moms. It is that we are looking at their baselines. And if they deviate too far away from their baselines, then we're able to objectively tell them, look, this is cause for you to go in, or this is cause for you to call the doctor. If you have a child, you understand you never want to be separated from your baby. So for us, when we do have to tell moms, hey, please go to the hospital, we are crying on the other end of that conversation because we don't want that separation. And so luckily for me, my husband never made me be separated from my babies. I was in and out of ERs after I delivered. I was, I had to go to, you know, more frequent doctors' appointments and you know, all of that is stress on your body. But to be mentally stressed, like you were talking about with that, with all of the facets of maternal health care, that mental stress of being away from my children would have been the end of me. I kid you not. So my husband brought my daughter to me. And while I was in the ER, I would come out, feed the baby, go back in, you know, wait. And then, because it's a waiting game too. They don't care that you just had a baby. You Mm -hmm. wait out there just like everybody else. So it matters the amount of support that you have around you, but you have to know that you need that support because sometimes, and I will just speak for myself, I don't love having everyone here when my baby's born. I just want to be able to bond and bond with my family and people who are really close to us. But sometimes you need that. You need that additional support. And if you don't have any type of metric that tells you to accept that support, then you just keep going because your body isn't even telling you that anything is wrong. And you'd rather believe that nothing is wrong than to believe that something could be.
0: Wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, hearing you say that makes me think like, wouldn't it truly be amazing if we normalized additional support and then a mom had the ability to say, you know, this is not what I need right now. And and almost like normalizing the fact that there's all that support there, you have it if you need it, and then you can then decide what you don't need with your team versus exactly. not knowing and then having to seek it out, but not even
1: knowing what to seek out, you mm-hmm. know? And that, that's our biggest goal is to for our Miss Moms to become advocates for themselves, because we are not doulas. We are not birth doulas. We are not there on the big day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so as they are being monitored by us, as they are going to their regular appointments, we're teaching them to ask questions and to not just, you know, go there like as a like blind routine to actually be an active part of their birth experience and they tell us all the time like i feel so much more encouraged i feel so much more empowered you know i was afraid to ask questions at first but now i'm happy that I, i found my voice so they need support from us but then they need to learn how to support themselves and i feel like all of our miss moms are doing such a great job That's amazing,
0: and I think that's the perfect way to go into our case studies. So I believe we have two case studies prepared, so I'm going to let you all just jump into one and and start with just what are the key things that we have to know about this person in your case study?
1: Okay, so this mom is a first-time mom. She is 26 years old. She has no comorbidities besides her being obese. And she has a very uneventful pregnancy. Let's highlight this. Once in her second trimester, we are monitoring moms through a watch and we're seeing their physiology on our computers every day. So it's daily monitoring with Operation Mist. And so with this mom, she's fine. Every day, she's totally fine. But one day and a few days after we notice a negative shift in her data. So we notice a spike in her stress. We notice that though she's sleeping more, her sleep quality is extremely low. Um, And then we also notice there's a measure that we look at called body battery. And it's usually like the best it would be is 100. You're fully charged for the day in the morning and then it drains throughout the day. But for her, it was extremely low after she slept. So she didn't charge it all at night. And then throughout the day, it got lower and lower. So when we notice things like that, and we look at it over a couple of days, and we see it not getting better, but getting worse, we outreach. And so through that outreach, I realized that she had a um, sinus infection and she was taking, I think it's Sudafed. That specific medication that she was taking was contraindicated for pregnancy. So once I figured out Mm -hmm. that and I let her know that, You know, I encouraged her to call her physician's office and speak to a nurse and let them know that. And so she did, and she was given another medication to help with her symptoms. And then after that, in a couple of days, her data normalized again. Also, with the same mom, at 39 weeks, she was encouraged to be induced because she was overweight. And that only. And just because she's a miss mom <laughs> and she knew her date, her data was fine. It was not indicating any distress. She advocated not to be. <laughs> so she had to fight for an additional week and a half. And unfortunately, even at that point, she had not dilated at all. But her doctor was unwilling to cooperate with her anymore so she was induced at that point um and she was kind of upset about it but also ready to meet her baby through that induction unfortunately she had a very long and painful labor experience because she's a first-time mom right but she had her baby and the baby was healthy so was she but she did have an infection and that's what that was related to her being induced and being in labor for so long, um, but we were able to monitor her throughout that healing and recovery phase, and just educate her and encourage her while she was in the hospital, and her data normalized after that. That is really cool that you were able to see that
0: something was going on just by looking at sleep quality, for example. I think that's such a great thing to bring up because it's not what people would think of. Well, first of all, sleep is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's like the number one indicator of health. And I think a lot of people don't know that. That's really cool that you were able to, you know, help educate. And even from there, it sounds like she was able to then take all of that knowledge and that support and advocate for herself. I love how you said that because she's a missed mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And how is she doing during her postpartum phase, do you continue monitoring even afterwards? To, I think you mentioned to help with that healing.
1: Yeah, so we continue to monitor um, up to a year postpartum because that's when women are still at risk for maternal mortality. So we monitor them and that journey is always so beautiful to watch because it's different because the baby is now outside and they're juggling learning how to breastfeed and then re entering the work environment for some of them. And so that journey is really more so encouragement and support than anything else.
0: Amazing. She's doing great
2: and her baby is
1: doing
0: amazing. Okay, so let's go right into our second case study. Catherine, take it away.
2: Yes, ma'am. And one other thing I wanted to add to Jessica's is, you know, you think about that induction and the eventual vaginal delivery. But imagine if it had taken place at 39 weeks and she didn't deliver at 40 and a half weeks. You can speed up a delivery that's almost there. Right. But the Mm -hmm. likelihood of her having had a vaginal delivery a week and a half before is a lot lower So the more time we can buy a mom, we can let her know, look, your body is not in distress and we can get this data to your doctor, which is what we did with this last mom. But she also can check on the baby. So they have technology and things to check on the baby and make sure the baby's okay. Because most moms will make decisions for their babies before they make decisions for themselves. And what we're telling them is you don't have to choose. You can be healthy. Your baby yes. can be healthy. Both of you can be monitored and checked on. And all we have to do is make sure you're not afraid to ask. So with this mom, I really feel like the problem with inductions that are scheduled for 39 weeks is that you never know if number one, the mom is actually 39 weeks. And then you don't know how much longer the baby would have been in. So it's, we like to tell people it's like a flight. If, I, if you say, hey, Catherine, I need you to be in California tomorrow okay, I have to take into account my finances. I have to take into account who's going to watch my children. Do I have to go to work today? So I might not be able to go, but you may tell Jessica and Jessica may say, Hey, I don't have nowhere to go. I don't want to be in California anyway. (laughs) So she'll go and she can make it. Well, we're two completely different people. So you induce one person, the person delivers fine. You induce another person, that person bleeds to death following the C-section delivery. So we're not trying to roll the dice with these moms and they shouldn't be allowing anybody to let them roll any dice because we wouldn't do it on a regular basis. So we're not going to do it for a childcare experience or just a delivery experience. So, Um, She was also a first time mom, no comorbidities. She was super healthy at baseline and she actually got pregnant while she was being monitored. So we got to see exactly when she got pregnant. It was wonderful. And because she had a miscarriage in the past, so I said no comorbidities, but she did have a miscarriage in the past and her mom also had a few miscarriages. So she was, we wanted to make sure she was seen sooner. Well, she was going to the doctor and and her doctor said, well, we're not going to see you until you're six weeks. You need to go back. After that happened a couple of times, we got her to a direct primary care doctor. And so she was able to get an ultrasound done of her sweet baby and uh, they were able to catch a bleed. So she actually had a bleed that could have ended up resulting in another Miscarriage, And then it was also discovered that she had low progesterone levels because she got her labs drawn. So anytime we have moms with miscarriages, we recommend that they just go ahead and do that. Look at your cervical length, check out your hormone levels. And so she got that checked out. And after she got those results back, then the OB was like, okay, you can come in early. They put her on the progesterone pill. We helped her modify the types of activities she was doing because her job requires that she jumps around a little bit, works with kids. So instead of working five days a week with kids, she worked two days a week with kids and did equipment needs the other three days. So she didn't have that increased risk of having that miscarriage. So then flash forward to the end of her pregnancy. And she she sent us a text message when she went into labor. She was just having a really <laughs> good time. She was so excited when the baby was born. So all of this was seamless, right? And uh, her hemoglobin, so we always have them check it, was 12 when she went in, but it was eight after the delivery. So it's a four-point drop, Right.
0: Mm -hmm. And so in
2: the healthcare system, I used to work in the hospital. They're not trying to give you blood or anything until you get to six because it's not considered critically low. So she was at eight and then uh, she was still bleeding, but they didn't check her hemoglobin before she left the hospital. So they are just assuming that because she looks good and, and everything that she is good to go home. So they send her home and we're monitoring her. And we noticed that instead of her body calming down like it normally does. So Jessica talked about some of the metrics that we monitor. And essentially, we're looking at the mom to return to baseline. So regardless of the metric, we knew what she looked like pre-pregnancy. So we're hoping to see that trend in the right direction. Well, we start seeing a trend in the wrong direction. And Mm. she was not scheduled to go back to the doctor until six weeks. Well, two days later, we told her, look, you're going to have to go to the med stop. Something is going on. We don't know what it is. It's likely related to the amount that you were bleeding. We need to, at a minimum, you get your hemoglobin levels checked and just get a little check on your heart to make sure you're good. So she goes to the med stop, they do an EKG and immediately they send her to the hospital. She ended up getting a referral for a cardiologist. He put her on the medications that she needed. Her body started calming down. Even before she reached back out, we were looking at her dad I'm like, ah, it's happening. <laughs> she looks so much better. But it turned out that she had some fluid around her heart and her lungs. And um, and it was so it was just good that it got detected. She ended up having a sooner visit to her OBGYN within the next three days. And then her next follow up after that was at three weeks. And she is doing amazingly well. And it really was just a matter. Oh Oh, and she also had a UTI that was caught. So. She had a urinary tract infection, excuse me. And so that was also a part of the reason that her body wasn't calming down. And she didn't know. She didn't feel any different. She was just peeing a lot. And who does not pee a lot after delivery, right? So the problem is that if all you're looking at are the normal symptoms, then you could just attribute that to normal recovery. Your body's trying to get rid of fluid after delivery. So if it's not burning or you're not having any issues, you're not thinking urinary tract infection, you're thinking, thank goodness I'm getting rid of this fluid. I won't be swollen for for that much longer, right? So that's our second case study and uh, one of our favorites.
0: I am seriously blown away. You both are saving lives. I mean, you truly are. And I just don't see a reason why anyone who is pregnant or postpartum or planning to be pregnant would not join Operation Mist (laughs) and become a Mist mom. I mean, I just think if you are making a baby registry and you're listening, put Operation Mist on it because... Mm -hmm what a great way to advocate for yourself and take care of yourself just everything that you all are doing is so holistic and i just feel like sometimes it can be very overwhelming to know how to take care of yourself during this period and i feel like catherine you just captured the essence of it when previously you made a statement where it was like moms are almost always going to put the needs of their baby before theirs Mm -hmm. and I love how you said that you and Jessica are telling moms that they don't have to choose. I'm blown away.
2: Thank you so much. I'm
0: so excited that we got to speak about this and It is so hard to cut off this episode because I think there's so much more to be said, but I'm so glad to have you both. I want to make sure that you both share with us where people can find the content that you're putting out, educational resources, and your website.
1: Yeah, so everybody can follow us on Instagram at Operation Mist. So that's Operation M-I-S-T. And then you can head to our website, OperationMist.org. And there you can see testimonials from our Miss Moms and just a more uh, in-depth description of who we are and what we do. We also have a podcast. It is the Operation Miss Podcast Tackling the Maternal Health Crisis. And it's on all major podcasting platforms. It's on Google, Apple, and Spotify. Am I missing something, Catherine? You
2: know what I was going to say, (laughs) Jessica, is that in addition to what we do with Operation Miss, we both like to put out content to just help moms have better journeys. So Jessica is on Instagram. And Jessica, can you share your handle?
1: Sure. Dr. JT underscore the pelvic pt and that's drjt yeah
2: and then i am at from scars to beauty marks and it just talks about scar tissue and how we can heal following scar tissue so for moms with c-section deliveries they will like to follow there and then on facebook i have a page called rediscover your music and it just helps moms along their motherhood journey so That's where you can find us. We hope you will find us because we love, love, love talking to mommies.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you both for sharing your time with me and all of us who are listening. Yeah. Can't wait for people to hear this episode.
1: Thank you. Yay! Thank you.
0: Flight by Pelvitol is approved for pelvic floor strengthening and SUI only. All information provided on this podcast is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace medical advice always seek out a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have about a medical condition. And if you have a question about flight and its indications for use, please see our website at flighttherapy.com. And that's it. See you next time on the next episode of Pelvic Floor at its Core.